0: This morning we're in Luke chapter 22, uh, 47 through 71. We continue on as we move through the passages that are taking us to the cross and then to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Most of these passages are in all four Gospels because they are the central part of the, the salvation of God. And it's so important. The Gospel of John, almost the entire book, is about this one week, of this Passover week, and all that Jesus is doing and diving into the meaningfulness of it. And so this morning, what we have before us is recorded in all four Gospels. It is central to who Jesus is, his innocence, why he was crucified, and there is a greater focus on the trial of Jesus Christ because it helps us to understand these things even than upon the cross and the physical crucifixion of Jesus. I tell you this morning that we must understand these things. If what I'm saying to you this morning is new and it's been a long time since you've heard about these things or you've never heard about these things, you must understand these things. Having a general positive attitude towards Jesus is not enough. We must understand who he is and what he did and why he did these things that we might then place our faith in these things. And so as we, as we uh, look at these things, let's begin by reading in Luke chapter 22. If you would please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word, Luke 22, 47 through 71. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly, this man was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him, as they blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So this morning, we're going to go through this narrative first to to explain it and put it together and bring in aspects of the other gospels. And it's going to be broken down into four parts. And then I'm going to bring application to these parts at the end. We're going to look at the betrayal, Peter's first and second denial, and then the first part of the trial, and then the conclusion of Peter's denial. So we begin with the betrayal. And it says in verse 47, while he was still speaking, so this is immediately on the tail end of the Garden of Gethsemane. This is right after Jesus has determined in his heart, not my will, but yours be done. Just like we sang this morning, and that he is going to do the will of the Father, all that God the Father has put into his heart to do, he is going to do, and he is going to fulfill the scriptures. And Immediately after he's gathered up the sleeping disciples and he is moving toward Jerusalem, they come out with him. They come out to get him. And it's important to see in verse 66 that it is still at night. This is before the day has come. We're talking way late at night, getting towards the early morning, somewhere in like the 3.30, 4 o'clock type of, of time frame in the morning. They have been out praying all night after a late supper and much teaching and struggling in prayer, and Judas, who has gone out from the table and has gathered up a group of thugs coming from the the chief priests, and he comes to Jesus with clubs and weapons as if they are going to arrest a robber, as Jesus says. And he comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss. So it's at night, and they've got torches, and whatever it is, they have had a hard time nailing down Jesus and cornering him. And Judas comes up to him and and betrays him with a kiss, a greeting that should be reserved for friends or those that are close to each other, and something that is done in love and in kindness is instead done with treachery, and it's done for money. And it's done under the influence of evil in order to betray Jesus into the hands of his enemies. And it says in verse 49 that the disciples understood what was getting ready to happen. What would follow. They see Jesus' arrest immediately at hand. And what is their first instinct? Their first instinct is the exact same first instinct of most of the men in this room would be. Which is, we're gonna fight this thing out right here. Like, draw the swords. You're not taking Jesus. We're gonna, we're gonna fight right here. And so Peter, as we know from the Gospel of uh, John, chapter 18, Peter is the one who first draws the sword and starts hacking before Jesus even says anything. And I guess he's aiming for his head and somehow misses his head and cuts the guy's ear off and it falls on the ground and Jesus stops all of this immediately. We're going to see that in just a second. But Jesus is not here to fight. It's very important. In Matthew chapter 26, he says, I must do all this to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus is on a particular path to do all of God's will, and it is God's will that he suffer and that he die on the cross to bear our sins, my sins, and yours. And he says in Matthew to his disciples, I don't need your swords. If I wanted to be delivered from this, I could call down 12 legions of angels, is what Jesus says. A legion is 6,000 Roman soldiers. So 12 times 6,000 is 72,000 warring angels. That's gonna take care of the situation. Like, nobody's gonna be able to stand against this. And all Jesus has to do is call for these things and they will be there. He, he is not in trouble and we must see that. He is laying down his life as the Lamb of God, intentionally. And though they wanted to struggle and fight and defend him, he is not seeking to be defended. He is seeking to lay himself down. I'm going to move this back a little bit so I can see you guys. There you go. Um, And so he heals this man's ear, though. And this is really important. He picks it up, puts it back on in a way that only Jesus could possibly do. And it is important for us to see, and I I will point out to you, as I have many times, that even though a miraculous healing happens in this place, it does not change the hearts of those who are hardened against Jesus. Because healings, miraculous healings, come either for the purposes of God or as a result of the faith of those who already believe. They are not those things that cause the unbelieving to believe. And that's very, very important. Many people mistake that situation in thinking that when people see miraculous things, it will cause them to believe. But that's not what the Bible says about miraculous things. But there's another purpose in this, because Jesus healing this man's ear can't. Cancels out Peter's foolish action because if they had taken him to court under these circumstances without this they could have made an accusation against him that he was in fact a violent and rebellious man and he had in fact done something that was causing insurrection or or fighting against the high priest but by putting back together what what Peter had broken apart he is able to cancel this out so there is no accusation against him that will stand And in verse 51, he's very clear. He says, No more of this. Stop this. This is not the way that my kingdom will come. And it is radically important for us to understand as Christians and as the church that nothing has changed in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will not come about through violence or by force. This is one of the great mistakes that was made in church history is the crusades the idea that we will be able to go out and by violence of force and by putting people to a test of believe or die is somehow going to usher in the kingdom of God it never will and Jesus is beginning this at this point and it keeps going forward that the kingdom of God is going to come by the work of the Lord through faith and not through force of violence and so we see the suffering Jesus that he is going to usher in his kingdom in a way that is incomprehensible to his disciples and that we even struggle with now. How is it that the kingdom of God is coming not by our force, but by the work of God? And it's something that comes about through the preaching of the gospel and through the establishment of the local church, through what we are doing right here this morning together in seeking to worship the Lord Jesus to confess our sins to him, to earnestly love each other, and to go out from this place to live for the Lord Jesus in obedience and in love toward one another. And that through this, the Lord God is establishing his kingdom, which he will fully establish when he returns again. But what we must see from this is that the way of Christ is a way of peace. And when we are angry and we are bitter, and we want to resort to violence against other people for the sake of what we think is the kingdom of God, we are wrong, and it will never accomplish the purposes of God. And so in verse 53, at the end of verse 53, Jesus speaks a little more about what is happening. He says, this is the hour of his enemies, and their hour has come, and the power of darkness is at work. We've talked about it a number of times in past weeks that Satan himself is actively and personally at work in this situation and in this time. And that there's a great fear that has come over the disciples and there's shame that's going to come over Peter as we're going to see in a moment and violence is at work. And all of these things uh, point us towards evil things afoot. And so Jesus recognizes it openly and submits himself to what is happening. And this takes us next to the denial of Peter. In verse 54, Peter follows. As the rest of the disciples have fled, the other two gospels are very clear, Matthew and Mark, that the disciples flee after they take Jesus into custody. And at some point, Peter and John turn around and then follow at a distance because they're afraid of what's getting ready to happen. They see Jesus in custody. They know that they have no uh, hope for what is going to happen here as turning out well. But Peter does follow at a distance because he wants to see what is going to happen. And he follows them taking Jesus to the high priest's house. The the house of the high priest was more like a palace. It was a a specific dwelling for this person of highest honor and service in the temple. And there's a courtyard to this house, and in the courtyard they have a fire burning, it says in verse 55, for springs in Jerusalem are cold, similar to our morning here this morning, a cold morning. If we were sitting outside, we'd have a fire burning. And so Peter sits down around this fire in the courtyard with other people, and it's still dark, and it's good to visualize what's happening here. We've we've been around campfires, and we've seen people's faces partially illuminated by the fire, and that's what's happening with Peter. And as he sits around the fire, outside of the proceedings, but wanting to be near and is partially illuminated by this fire, a servant girl looks over at him and says, this man was with him. So it's interesting. Inside, we're going to see that Jesus is being interrogated by the most powerful people in the Jewish community, and he is withstanding their interrogations. And Peter is outside, addressed by the lowliest person, a young girl in a serving position a, a, of no standing in the community, and he's terrified of her. He has no strength to withstand the, the scrutiny of this young person. And he says, I don't I don't know him. I don't know him. He wants to distance himself from Jesus. The contrast between Jesus and Peter are remarkable. Jesus is absolutely determined to do God's will, no matter what the cost. He is full of faith, full of righteousness, and will not stop doing God's will. And Peter is all about preserving himself. I've got to distance myself from Jesus because this might cost me something. They might pull me in there if if I'm associated with them. He has no faith as to what Jesus is doing here or believing in him. And so he distances himself. He is ashamed. A little bit later, there's another person that says, you are one of them. He says, no, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm not. I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not one of them. And he backs away again. And we're told in 22, 34, that there, is a, uh, that there are three times that Jesus told was going to, he was going to deny him. And so we've got two of the three here. And in verse 59, it tells us there's an interval of an hour or about an hour between the second denial and the third denial. And so it's interesting that the Gospel of Luke, he he gathers all of the denial accounts together into basically one story, where he tells them all at one time. But we're also aware here that there's two things going on. Jesus has been brought into custody, and things are happening with Jesus in custody, and we're told about the passage of time. And so it's my understanding that the third denial of Christ, it's not just a bam, bam, bam type of a thing. There's, there's two that happen, and then there's a waiting period, and then there's a third. And somewhere in that hour interval of waiting, this trial of Jesus is unfolding. So in our treatment of this today, I would like to move on into looking some at the trial, because to me, it makes greater importance as to this, what's gonna happen between Jesus and Peter later, that some of this trial has transpired between the second and the third during this waiting of an hour. And so, if we go on and we look at verse 63, we begin to see the unfolding of the trial of Jesus Christ. And there's two distinct parts to the trial of Jesus Christ. This morning, we're going to look at the first part of it, where he is in the house and then with the high priests and that group of people, the Jewish court, if you will. But you have to remember that, that Jerusalem at this time is under Roman occupation. And they are not allowed to do uh, but so many things in their courts. And they certainly are not allowed to execute anyone. And that is the goal, is to execute Jesus. And so the second part of the trial, which we'll see next week and the following week, is before the Roman uh, authorities of Pilate and Herod. But the abuse begins early in verse 63, right after they have taken him into custody. It says, now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him. It says the men, because he's not yet in Roman custody. So this group of brigands that they brought together to take Jesus into custody uh, are holding him at the high priest's house. It's part of some mob. They're guards, not Romans, and they're mocking him. And they are blindfolding him and beating him, saying, prophesy, prophesy. You could, if some somehow or another they're covering his face and his head, and they're, and they're striking him and, and uh, blaspheming him. And that's a powerful word and a word that we need to uh, define and understand. It's not a word that we hear a lot in this day and age. What does it mean to blaspheme something? Blasphemy is abuse or contempt of God and his holiness. So something that should be held in high regard, something that should be honored is intentionally dishonored and abused and drugged through the mud. And that is exactly what is happening here. These people do not believe in Jesus. And instead of believing in him, they are going to abuse him and blaspheme him. There are definitely blasphemers around in our day and age. Those that intentionally take the things of God, which ought to be regarded as holy and righteous and separated, and they intentionally abuse them and intentionally make them unholy and drag them through the mud. Well, in verse 66, the, the sun finally starts to rise and a new day starts to dawn. And those that are a part of this this group of chief priests and scribes begin to gather together for an official gathering. In the night, they've been notified of what is happening, and they gather together at the break of day in order to try Jesus. So we have to think about this. They're coming together in all of their religious costumes, and all of their uh, robes, and all of their specialness, and their special places of honor in this council, and their traditional proceedings, and a, formal, a formality to the council, and we know from Matthew and Mark that they seek witnesses against Jesus. And so you can visualize a proceeding like this, and all the, the, the seeming importance of it. But it's vital to keep in, in, in perspective what is actually happening here. This is the ultimate kangaroo court. This is, this is a complete sham. Everything about this is a sham. These same people just paid a day before in order to find Jesus to bring him in because their entire intent with this proceeding is to figure out a way to kill him. Their hearts are full of darkness and they're actively seeking Jesus' death. There is nothing about this court that is, uh, that is un- impartial. It is completely partial, and it is completely against Jesus. In Matthew and Mark, it says that they seek witnesses, and they, they can't ever seem to find two that agree, because in Jewish law, you had to have two or three witnesses agree together, which, by the way, is a pretty good idea, in order to establish a facts of a case, And so they can't seem to find anybody that will agree two together as to something bad that Jesus did. Because there was nothing to see. There was nothing to agree on. They finally find two people that that basically agree, and they say this. We heard him say that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, which is exactly what he said. Because it had nothing to do with the brick and mortar uh, temple. It had to do with his own body being crucified and raising again in three days. But even then, even if he did say that in the sense that they are talking about it, that's not a capital offense. We can't take Jesus to the Romans and, and suggest that he be crucified based on this. We've got to find something more than that. And so what we find in the Gospel of Luke is when they turn to Jesus trying trying to incriminate jesus by his own testimony about himself and so in verse 67 they say this if you are the christ tell us but he said to them if i tell you you will not believe and so jesus has been preaching and teaching and been around them and with them for three years now And this same group of people keeps doubling down and doubling down in their hardness of heart against Jesus. And he knows at this point in time that bantering with them or preaching or teaching to them, that that point has passed. They are hardened in their unbelief. And if he says anything to them, it is not going to affect their hearts. And so he does not enter into conversation with them. But what he does tell them is what is getting ready to happen. Verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's saying that I am going to complete the salvation for which I came. I am going to rise from the dead, and then I am going to be seated in the place of honor. The right hand of God the Father is the place of honor in heaven. And when I have completed the salvation for which I came, this is where I will be seated. And they cannot stand it because they understand what he is trying to say. And so they ask him more plainly and more clearly, are you the son of God? And folks, this is the question of the Bible. This is the question of the Gospels. Is Jesus the son of God or not? Is, what does this mean? What this means, they're asking him, are you united with God? Is your essence the same as God? Are you the same nature as God? Do you bear the authority of God? Are you part, are you God? Are you able to do the things that only God can do? You've said you're going around proclaiming the forgiveness of sins. Only God can forgive sins. Do you actually have the authority to forgive sins? Do you have the authority to grant life? Do you have the authority to declare good from evil? Only God can do these things. Do you actually have this authority? Are you claiming to have this authority? Well, this question and who Jesus is presenting himself as should not surprise us because it begins, if we go all the way back to many, many, many months ago when we started in the Gospel of Luke, at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, when Jesus comes forward and is baptized by John the Baptist and he comes up out of the water. If you remember what happens, the Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove, and the voice of God the Father speaks from heaven and says what? This is my beloved son. You are my beloved son. God the Father proclaims audibly at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ that Jesus is the son of God. And he goes about preaching and teaching fully in this way for his entire ministry. And the reason why these chief priests and scribes are so against him is that they understand that this is exactly his message. This is exactly what he is saying. And it comes out loud and clear in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 5, verse 18, it says this, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. This is early in the ministry of Jesus. They understood loud and clear what he was doing. And the disciples understood. And this is why they wrote what they wrote in the accounts of Jesus Christ. This is what John, this is John's summary verse for the gospel of John. John 20, 30, and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is why the Gospels were written. This is why I am preaching to you today. And this is why the church continues on, that we continue in faith in believing that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the Son of God. We hear this teaching, and they heard his teaching, but what do we do with it? They understood his claim. This is why they hated Jesus so much. But Jesus will not banter with them back and forth any anymore because his time has come and their hearts are hard. And so he says, you say that I am. And it's enough of a response that they understand all of his ministry and all of the consistency of his ministry and that he continues in this path. And the the response from the high priest in the gospels of Mark and Matthew is much more powerful and much more passionate. It says that he tears his robe and says, blasphemy. We've been talking about blasphemy. So he's now accusing Jesus of blasphemy because if Jesus is claiming to be the son of God and he's not, then that is blasphemy because he's claiming to be something that he is not. And so it is a battle of what is really happening here. But the chief priest tears his robe, cries blasphemy, and openly calls for his death publicly. And so do the others on the council. And they begin to openly abuse him in a way that they have never before. They spit on his face. You imagine a person being in the midst of a large crowd and being spat on by everyone there. Them striking him and slapping him. Slapping him is not really meant as much to hurt someone as to, as to shame someone and openly exert your authority over them and that they have nothing that they can do in response. They then cover his face and strike him and punch him and continue to blaspheme him. And then they take him to Pilate, which we'll talk about next week. But somewhere in the midst of this proceeding, Time is passing and Peter is still outside. And it's unclear how all of this happens. But what we have to do is we go back to to verse 60. Actually, um, before that, verse 59. After an interval of about an hour, another person insists to Peter, certainly this man was with him, for he too is Galilean. This certainly part, he's insisting on it. There's, there's, a, there's a pressure to it that was not there before. And he says in verse 60, I, I, don't know, I don't know what you're talking about, but when we go to Matthew and Mark, we have an even greater emphasis. It is powerful. It says this, it says that Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. I don't know that man. All of us are in the workplace, and all of us are in the world, and we're around profanity all day long. So you fill in what you want to fill in there. Blank, 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 blank. I don't know that man. I don't blank, blank know that man. Like, it's, it's a person getting as verbally abusive as they can to, to try to distance themselves from somebody. And this is Peter, and this is what is happening here. And it's a, it's a, it's a disaster of faith. It's it's a shaming. He he while Jesus is in there doing all that is happening, his faith is failing and he is distancing himself from Jesus in absolute shame. But in verse 60, it says this. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. So remember, Jesus said this this rooster is going to crow, the day is going to dawn and you're going to deny me 3 times. And the call of a rooster always kind of cuts through the the silence and the noise, and we hear it, and he hears it, and it immediately takes him back. It breaks the moment. We've been in times like that where we're so wound around something, and we're so messed up, and someone says something or something happens, and it just breaks the moment, and it stops us right where we are. And this rooster crows, and it, it breaks what is happening, and he turns and looks, and it says that the Lord Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Turning is an intentional thing, and this is not a happenstance for Jesus. In his absolute perfection and providence, he turns and he looks at him, and somehow from the inside to the outside, or if they're moving him from one place to another, this perfect providential moment happens, and he looks at Peter, and Peter looks at him and you know as well as I do how much can be conveyed non-verbally without any word being said by any person when much leads up to it. And the non-verbal nature of what is what is presented here from Jesus to Peter without saying a word breaks Peter. What did Jesus convey when he looked at him? I, to, I think it's important to think. It's not told here. But I think from the ministry of Jesus, we can, we can, uh, we can project what Jesus would have looked like. First of all, it's got to be disappointment and sadness as as to what is happening here, that, that in fact he did fail in his sin. But we know from Jesus he is full of grace and he is full of mercy and he is full of love. And so somehow the face of Jesus conveying this sadness but also conveying this love and this grace and this mercy to Peter. Because his look to him and his words to him before this lead him to go out and repent It leads to a sadness. It says he goes out and he wept bitterly. And that's the right response. When you have sinned in such a grievous way, it's right for your heart to be broken by it and for you to weep over your sin and to see yourself for who you are But then the sadness that comes upon us through the conviction of Christ Jesus brings us to life and to repentance and to come back to Jesus and to receive his mercy and to receive his grace and to move on in new life, which we'll see in a moment. But so much is presented to Peter in just a look from Jesus. And so in application, what do we do with these things? This terrible situation with Peter is, is recorded in all four Gospels. It is a warning to us. It's a tremendous warning that we see exactly what it looks like, both on the front end, the ugly details of someone denying Christ, and then the conviction that comes when we realize what we have done and how we have failed. And it, my heart is taken immediately to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. A powerful verse that's it's on the license plate of one of our elders. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Christians in every age have been tempted, just like Peter, to be ashamed of Jesus Christ to want to distance themselves from him because of what it means to want to disassociate themselves from Jesus, to be awkward in the presence of Christians and just would rather get away or to avoid them because of what it means, the cost that comes with associating yourself with Jesus. And I would ask you, is this you this morning? Are you a person that openly disassociates yourself with Jesus? Perhaps even this week out in the world, you have done something that you know was an active step that you took out of shame for the name of Christ, where you disassociated yourself from Jesus because of some cost that might come with it. And I want you to hear the warning of this passage, and I encourage you, if you are a Christian in this place today, that you will walk away from this passage and that you will determine in some particular way before the Lord this afternoon on this Sunday— To determine and ask God to help you to never be ashamed of Jesus Christ. That you will never deny the name of Jesus. That you will now count the cost of what it means to follow after Jesus Christ. And you will ask for what Peter did not have then, but what is available to us now, and which is the most important thing, is that we be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Because when we look at the progression of Peter's life, it's very important Here in 2262, we have him in this bitter low place of sorrow and repentance, but in John 21, which we talked about a few weeks ago, the the beautiful passage where Jesus restores him and proclaims his love for him and, and shows grace to him, and he is forgiven of his sins, that there is no sin that is so great that we cannot be forgiven by the grace of Jesus for his love for us is unending in this way. But Acts 2 is the pivotal situation where at Pentecost, the Lord God sends the Holy Spirit. And of all people, Peter is the key person there. And by the power of God's Spirit in him, he becomes a totally different person. And where he went from shame and fear of... of, A young woman, as a servant, he goes to proclaim to the world and before all people that Jesus is Lord and is willing to be imprisoned and go to a martyr's death for it. And the difference is the Holy Spirit in his life. You cannot do the work of God without the power of God. You might determine in your heart all kinds of great things that you're going to do. But if you don't take these things to God and ask for him to fill, his, fill you with his spirit and to give you his strength to do these things, you will surely fail. But when you ask for his strength and you go into a situation that you failed in before and you are bold instead, you will go out praising God for seeing the work that he's done in your life to make you a new person, a new man, a new woman. Peter stumbled badly, but I want you to see this morning that he has settled the main question, and the main question was, who is Jesus? Is Jesus the Son of God? Peter knew, it had been revealed to him, as it said earlier in the Gospels, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And though he stumbled badly, he did not turn away from this belief. He had moved beyond indifference to belief. Beyond curiosity to confess that Jesus is Lord and to love Him from the heart. Beyond anger toward God, to submission to the will of God. And I urge you, each and every one of you today, to believe on the suffering Jesus that you might be forgiven of your sins. I would ask for you this morning that if you believe that you would be baptized, The command of the Lord Jesus Christ is that if you believe in him, that you would publicly be baptized, that you would openly and without shame proclaim before the world that Jesus is Lord. And this is an important step of obedience related to the things that we're talking about today. Next Sunday, we'll be baptizing. If you know that you've trusted Christ as your Savior, but you've been ashamed to be baptized before the watching world for whatever reason— It's time to get over that and to obey the Lord God and be baptized. Come, see me after the service, and we'll talk about it. Be baptized next week before the watching world. May there be no shame in our hearts toward our beloved Jesus. Let us be filled with his spirit and go from this place strong in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for this passage this morning. The beauty of Christ Jesus is always astonishing. When you read about Jesus openly and gladly subjecting himself to these things because of a desire to do the will of the Father, that we might have a way of grace through faith to come to salvation is astonishing. We could never do these things. It can only be done by God. And we say this morning that we openly and gladly and joyfully confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is divine, and we believe in him. We don't look to him just as a moral example. We look to you, Lord Jesus, as our Savior, and that only you can forgive sins. Only you have the authority to define right from wrong. Only you are God Almighty. And so I pray for your work in the hearts of these people today. I pray for those that don't know you as Savior, Lord, that they would turn away from their anger towards you, that you would melt away the bitterness and you would melt away the hardness of heart and bring people to their knees. Those that are struggling with shame over Christianity and the shame in the name of Jesus, that you would fill them with your spirit, that they would confess their shame to you and that they would go out tomorrow in a new and a different way. Lord, boldly and gladly and joyfully, proclaiming the name of Jesus. We love you this morning, and in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.